Chapter Five of Running Water by A. E. W. Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Michel Revailloux expounds his philosophy. That summer was long remembered in Chamonix. July passed with a procession of cloudless days. Valley and peak basked in sunlight. August came, and on a hot starlit night in the first week of that month, Chain sat opposite to Michel Revailloux in the balcony of a café which overhangs the Arve. Below him the river, tumbling swiftly amidst the boulders, flashed in the darkness like white fire. He sat facing the street. Chamonix was crowded and gay with lights. In the little square just out of sight upon the right, some travelling musicians were singing, and up and down the street the visitors thronged noisily. Women in light-coloured evening frocks, with lace shawls thrown about their shoulders and their hair, men in attendance upon them, clerks from Paris and Geneva upon their holidays, and every now and then a climber with his guide, come late from the mountains, would cross the bridge quickly and stride toward his hotel. Chayne watched the procession in silence, quite aloof from its light-heartedness and gaiety. Michel Revailloux drained his glass of beer, and as he replaced it on the table, said wistfully, "'So this is the last night, monsieur. It is always sad, the last night.' "'It is not exactly as we planned it,' replied Chayne, and his eyes moved from the throng before him in the direction of the churchyard where a few days before his friend had been laid amongst the other Englishmen who had fallen in the Alps. I do not think that I shall ever come back to Chamonix, he said, in a quiet and heartbroken voice. Michel gravely nodded his head. There are no friendships, said he, like those made amongst the snows. But this, monsieur, I say, your friend is not greatly to be pitied. He was young, had known no suffering, no ill health, and he died at once. He did not even kick the snow for a little while. No doubt that's true, said Chayne, submitting to the commonplace, rather than drawing from it any comfort. He called to the waiter. Since it is the last night, Michel, he said with a smile, we will drink another bottle of beer. He leaned back in his chair, and once more grew silent, watching the thronged street and the twinkling lights. In the little square one of the musicians, with a very clear, sweet voice, was singing a plaintive song, and above the hum of the crowd, the melody, haunting in its wistfulness, floated to Chain's ears, and troubled him with many memories. Michel leaned forward upon the table, and answered not merely with sympathy, but with the air of one speaking out of full knowledge, and speaking, moreover, in a voice of warning. True, monsieur, the happiest memories can be very bitter, if one has no one to share them. All is in that, monsieur, if, and he repeated his phrase, if one has no one to share them. Then the technical side of Chain's proposal took hold of him. The Col d'Olon, you will have to start early from the Chalet de Lognon, monsieur. You will sleep there, of course, to-morrow. You will have to start at midnight, perhaps even before. There is very little snow this year. The great Bergschrund will be very difficult. In any season it is always difficult to cross that Bergschrund onto the steep ice-slope beyond. It is so badly bridged with snow. This season will be as bad as can be. The ice-slope up to the Col will also take a long time, so start very early. As Michel spoke, as he anticipated the difficulties, and set his thoughts to overcome them, his eyes lit up, his whole face grew younger. 
Chayne smiled. I wish you were coming with me, Michel, he said, and at once the animation died out of Michel's face. He became once more a sad, dispirited man. Alas, monsieur, he said, I have crossed my last col, I have ascended my last mountain. You, Michel, cried Chayne. Yes, monsieur, I, replied Michel quietly. I have grown old, my eyes hurt me on the mountains, and my feet burn. I am no longer fit for anything except to lead mules up to the Montanvert and conduct parties on the Mer de Glace. Chayne stared at Michel Revailloux. He thought of what the guide's life had been, of its interest, its energy, its achievement. More than one of those aiguilles towering upon his left hand into the sky had been first conquered by Michel Revailloux. And how he had enjoyed it all! What resource he had shown! What cheerfulness! Remorse gradually seized upon Chayne as he looked across the little iron table at his guide. Yes, it is a little sad, continued Revailloux. But I think that toward the end life is always a little sad, if, and the note of warning once more was audible, if one has no well-loved companion to share one's memories. The very resignation of Michel's voice brought Chayne to a yet deeper compunction. The wistful melody still throbbed high and sank, and soared again above the murmurs of the passers-by, and floated away upon the clear, hot, starlit night. Chayne wondered with what words it spoke to his old guide. He looked at the tired, sad face, on which a smile of friendliness now played, and his heart ached. He felt some shame that his own troubles had so engrossed him. After all, Lattery was not greatly to be pitied. That was true. He himself, too, was young. There would come other summers, other friends. The real irreparable trouble sat there before him on the other side of the iron table the trouble of an old age to be lived out in loneliness you never married michel he said no there was a time long ago when i would have liked to the guide answered simply but i think now it was as well that i did not get my way she was very extravagant she would have needed much money and guides are poor people monsieur not like your professional cricketers he said with a laugh and then he turned toward the massive wall of mountains. Here and there a slim rock spire, the Dru or the Charmos, pointed a figure to the stars. Here and there an ice-field glimmered like a white mist held in a fold of the hills. But to Michel Revailloux the whole vast range was spread out as on a raised map, buttress and peak and dome of snow from the Aiguille d'Argentière in the east to the summit of Mont Blanc in the west. In his thoughts he turned from mountain to mountain, and found each one, majestic and beautiful, dear as a living friend, and hallowed with recollections. He remembered days when they had called, and not in vain, for courage and endurance, days of blinding snowstorms and bitter winds which had caught him halfway up some ice-glazed precipice of rock, or on some long, steep ice-slope crusted dangerously with thin snow, into which the axe must cut deep hour after hour, however frozen the fingers or tired the limbs. He recalled the thrill of joy with which, after many vain attempts, he, the first of men, had stepped onto the small topmost pinnacle of this or that new peak. He recalled the days of travel, the long glacier walks on the high level from Chamonix to Zermatt, and from Zermatt again to the Oberland, 
the still clear mornings and the pink flush upon some high white cone which told that somewhere the sun had risen and the unknown ridges where unexpected difficulties suddenly vanished at the climber's approach and others where an easy scramble suddenly turned into the most difficult of climbs michel raised his glass in the air here is good-bye to you the long good-bye he said and his voice broke and abruptly he turned to Chayne with his eyes full of tears, and began to speak in a quick, passionate whisper, while the veins stood out upon his forehead, and his face quivered. "'Monsieur, I told you your friend was not greatly to be pitied. I tell you now something more. The guide we brought down with him from the Glacier des Nantillons a fortnight back. All this fortnight I have been envying him. Yes, yes, even though he kicked the snow with his feet for a little before he died.' It is better to do so than to lead mules up to the Montanvert. I am sorry, said Chayne. The words sounded, as he spoke them, lame enough and trivial in the face of Michel's passionate lament. But they had an astonishing effect upon the guide. The flow of words stopped at once. He looked at his young patron almost whimsically, and a little smile played about his mouth. I am sorry, he repeated. Those were the words the young lady spoke to you on the steps of the hotel. You have spoken with her, monsieur, and thanked her for them? No, said Chayne, and there was much indifference in his voice. Women had as yet not played a great part in Chayne's life. Easy to please, but difficult to stir, he had in the main just talked with them by the way, and had gone on forgetfully, and when any one had turned and walked a little of his road beside him, she had brought to him no thought that here might be a companion, for all the way. His indifference roused Michel to repeat, and this time unmistakably, the warning he had twice uttered. He leaned across the table, fixing his eyes very earnestly on his patron's face. "'Take care, monsieur,' he said. "'You are lonely to-night, very lonely. Then take good care that your old age is not one lonely night, like this, repeated and repeated through many years. Take good care that when you and your turn come to the end, and say good-bye too, he waved his hand toward the mountains, you have some one to share your memories. See, monsieur, and very wistfully he began to plead, I go home to-night, I go out of Chamonix, I cross a field or two, I come to Les Pracondis and my cottage. I push open the door. It is all dark within. I light my own lamp, and I sit there a little by myself. Take an old man's wisdom, monsieur. When it is all over and you go home, take care that there is a lighted lamp in the room, and the room is not empty. Have some one to share your memories when life is nothing but memories. He rose as he ended, and held out his hand. As Chayne took it, the guide spoke again, and his voice shook. "'Monsieur, you have been a good patron to me,' he said, with a quiet and most dignified simplicity, "'and I make you what return I can. I have spoken to you out of my heart, for you will not return to Chamonix, and after to-night we shall not meet again.' "'Thank you,' said Chayne, and he added, "'We have had many good days together, Michel.' "'We have, monsieur.' I climbed my first mountain with you. The Aiguille du Midi, I remember it well. Both were silent after that, and for the same reason. Neither could trust his voice. Michel Revailloux picked up his hat, 
turned abruptly away and walked out of the café into the throng of people. Chayne resumed his seat and sat there, silent and thoughtful, until the street began to empty and the musicians in the square ceased from their songs. Meanwhile, Michel Revailloux walked slowly down the street, stopping to speak with anyone who knew, however slightly, that he might defer his entrance into the dark and empty cottage at Les Bras Conduits. He drew near to the hotel where Chayne was staying, and saw under the lamp above the door a guide whom he knew, talking with a young girl. The young girl raised her head. It was she who had said, I am sorry. As Michel came within the circle of light, she recognized him. She spoke quickly to the guide, and he turned at once and called, Michel, and when Revailloux approached, he presented him to Sylvia Thesiger. He has made many first ascents in the range of Mont Blanc, mademoiselle. Sylvia held out her hand with a smile of admiration. I know, she said, I have read of them. Really? cried Michel. You have read of them, you, mademoiselle? There was as much pleasure as wonder in his tone. After all, flattery from the lips of a woman, young and beautiful, was not to be despised, he thought, the more especially when the flattery was so very well deserved. Life had perhaps one or two compensations to offer him in his old age. "'Yes, indeed. I am very glad to meet you, Michel. I have known your name a long while, and envied you for living in the days when these mountains were unknown.' Revailloux forgot the mules to the Montanvert and the tourists on the Mer de Glace. He warmed into cheerfulness. This young girl looked at him with so frank an envy. "'Yes, those were great days, mademoiselle,' he said, with a thrill of pride in his voice. "'But if we love the mountains, the first descent or the hundredth, there is just the same joy when you feel the rough rock beneath your fingers, or the snow crisp under your feet. Perhaps mademoiselle herself will sometime—' At once Sylvia interrupted him with an eager happiness. "'Yes, to-morrow,' she said. "'Oh, ho! It is your first mountain, mademoiselle?' "'Yes.' And Jean here is your guide, Jean and his brother, I suppose? Michel laid his hand affectionately on the guide's shoulder. You could not do better, mademoiselle. He looked at her thoughtfully for a little while. She was fresh, fresh as the smell of the earth in spring after a fall of rain. Her eyes, the alertness of her face, the eager tones of her voice were irresistible to him, an old, tired man. How much more irresistible, then, to a younger man! Her buoyancy would lift such a one clear above his melancholy, although it were as deep as the sea. He himself, Michel Revailloux, felt twice the fellow he had been when he sat in the balcony above the Arve. "'And what mountain is it to be, mademoiselle?' he asked. The girl took a step from the door of the hotel and looked upward. To the south, but quite close, the long, thin ridge of the Aiguille de Charmoz towered jagged and black against the starlit sky. On one pinnacle of that ridge a slab of stone was poised like the top of a round table on the slant. It was at that particular pinnacle that Sylvia looked. L'Aiguille de Charmoz, said Michel doubtfully, and Sylvia swung round to him and argued against his doubt. But I have trained myself, she said. I have been up the Brévent and the Flégère. I am strong, stronger than I look. Michel Revailloux smiled. Mademoiselle, I do not doubt you. A young lady who has enthusiasm is very hard to tire. 
It is not because of the difficulty of that rock-climb that I thought to suggest the Aiguille d'Argentière. Sylvia turned with some hesitation to the younger guide. You, too, spoke of that mountain, she said. Michel pressed his advantage. And wisely, mademoiselle, if you will let me advise you, you will sleep to-morrow night at the Pavillon de Lognon, and the next day climb the Aiguille d'Argentière. Sylvia looked regretfully up to the ridge of the Charmos, which during this last fortnight had greatly attracted her. She turned her eyes from the mountain to Rivailloux, and let them rest quietly upon his face. "'And why do you advise the Aiguille d'Argentière?' she asked. Michel saw her eyes softly shining upon him in the darkness, and all the more persisted. Was not his dear patron who must needs be helped to open his eyes, since he would not open them himself, going to sleep to-morrow in the pavillon de Lognon? The roads to the Col d'Olon and the Aiguille d'Argentière both start from that small mountain inn. But this was hardly the reason which Michel could give to the young girl who questioned him. He bethought him of another argument, a subtle one which he fancied would strongly appeal to her. Moreover, there was truth in it. I will tell you why, mademoiselle. It is to be your first mountain. It will be a day in your life which you will never forget. Therefore you want it to be as complete as possible, is it not so? It is a good rock-climb, the Aiguille des Charmos, yes, but the Argentière is more complete. There is a glacier, a rock traverse, a couloir up a rock-cliff, and at the top of that a steep ice-slope. And that is not all. You want your last step on the summit to reveal a new world to you. On the Charmos, it is true, there is a cleft at the very top up which you scramble between two straight walls, and you pop your head out above the mountain. Yes, but you see little that is new, for before you enter the cleft you see both sides of the mountain. With the Argentière it is different. You mount at the last for quite a time behind the mountain, with your face to the ice-slope, and then suddenly you step out upon the top, and the chain of Mont Blanc will strike suddenly upon your eyes and heart. See, si, mademoiselle, I love these mountains with a very great pride, and I would dearly like you to have that wonderful white revelation of a new strange world upon your first descent. Before he had ended, he knew that he had won. He heard the girl draw sharply in her breath. She was making for herself a picture of the last step from the ice-slope to Summit Ridge. Very well, she said, it shall be the Aiguille d'Argentière. Michel went upon his way out of Chamonix and across the fields. They would be sure to speak, those two, to-morrow, at the Pavillon de Lognon, if only there were no other party there in that small inn. Michel's hopes took a leap and reached beyond the Pavillon de Lognon. To ascend one's first mountain, yes, that was enviable and good. But one should have a companion with whom one can live over again the raptures of that day in the after-time. Well, perhaps, perhaps. Michel pushed open the door of his cottage and lit his lamp, without after all bethinking him that the room was dark and empty. His ice-axes stood in a corner, the polished steel of their adze-heads gleaming in the light, his rucksack and some coils of rope hung upon pegs, his book with the signatures and the comments of his patron lay at his elbow on the table, a complete record of his life. But he was not thinking that they had served him for the last time. 
He sat down in his chair, and so remained for a little while. But a smile was upon his face, and once or twice he chuckled aloud as he thought of his high diplomacy. He did not remember at all that to-morrow he would lead mules up to the Montanvert and conduct parties on the Mer de Glace. End of chapter 5